Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for what a beautiful day you've given us, and we know that your mercies are new every morning, and we thank you for that. We know that we stand only by your grace. And uh, Lord, as we look at Revelation chapter 10, Heavenly Father, help us to understand how this book is laid out, the promises that you've given for both judgment and salvation, and to help us to realize the blessings that we have again in your Son, how we've been protected from these things, and we have a glorious kingdom to look forward to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we begin in Revelation chapter 10, we have here another two-vision interlude, just like we had in chapter 7. Remember, we had a two-vision interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. Well, now we have another interlude between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. Okay? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you where this is alluded to because... With the three woes, remember we covered this in Revelation chapter 8, there was three woes, and the three woes would culminate in the coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. With the three woes being expired, you'd have all of the wrath of God poured out. Well, we saw that in Revelation 8.13. John said, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Now stop there. Those who dwell on the earth, remember, is a technical expression for only unbelievers, correct? So it's only for unbelievers on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to sound. Now recall we looked at these three woes. The first woe was the fifth trumpet. And again, you had these creatures, these locusts coming up out of the abyss, which we defined as demons. Okay, well then the second woe is you had in the sixth trumpet this demonic army. But the sixth trumpet technically is going to last all the way to chapter 11, verse 14. Well, where you and I are now is notice in the red on the screen, we're in chapter 10, and that's an interlude. And so it's like John saying, oh, by the way, um, this is what's going on behind the scenes. And he's giving us further information so that when the seventh trumpet, or excuse me, seventh seal, or excuse me, yeah, trumpet, it would be the trumpet, is broken, we are privy to more information. So if we were moviegoers, you probably recall the phrase, meanwhile, back at the ranch, right? Or maybe that's one of those phrases from American television, but that means there's things that are happening that need to be stated kind of in a parenthesis, and that's what we have here in chapter 10. Now, Chapter 10 can be broken into two sections. Verses 1 through 7, we're going to see, that's what we're going to focus on today, is a climactic announcement. There is no longer any delay. And that's going to be stated by God's messenger, this angel, meaning that finally, with the breaking of the seventh trumpet and all of the judgments that proceed from it, the bowl judgments, you're going to have the finishing of God's wrath and the reign of Christ. It's going to be terrific. We're going to have Christ come and reign on the planet. But then in verses 8 through 11, we'll look at that next week, Lord willing. We're going to have the commissioning, recommissioning of John. So all of this brings us back to Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3. Ezekiel 1 through 3, you had the commissioning of the prophet Ezekiel. He was to take a little scroll. John is to take a little book. Ezekiel was to take this bittersweet document and to digest it. 
and then to proclaim judgment upon the people of Judah for apostasy? Well, John is going to give this book also its prophetic utterance to the world, and he's going to prof profess judgment upon the world. Ezekiel's day, the prophet gives judgment upon Judah for apostasy. John's day, he gives judgment upon the whole world for apostasy. And so we should see Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3 as the backdrop to Revelation chapter 10, I think, verses 1 through 11, the whole chapter. Okay? So again, we're going to see that John is going to be recommissioned. But before we look at that, we're going to see that there is, in fact, a messenger of this destruction, this angel. So again, first seven verses we're covering today, you have the angel with the little book. And then verses 8 through 11, you're going to have the recommissioning of John. Now, what's interesting is we begin to look into chapter 10, we have a significant change in this interlude. And the change is that John is going to be no longer just an observer of the events, but he's also going to be a participant. Now, with this change, then, also comes a change of location. The location of John is going to change from heaven to the earth. And you'll see evidence of that when you get to chapter 11, that he must be on the earth in order to observe these things because he's going to have to measure the temple. So with that, let me begin reading Revelation 10.1. Excuse me, I'm having some sinus trouble too, so if I stop and pause and cough and stuff, it's just allergies. Revelation 10.1, he says, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, one of the things we have to wrestle with in this text is, well, who is this strong angel? Now, some have suggested that the strong angel that's speaking here may be Christ himself. And it's not such a far-fetched idea when you consider three facts. Number one, notice here that he descends in a cloud. Well, we know that Jesus in Acts 1.9 ascended in a cloud, and we know in Daniel 7.13 that the Son of Man is going to come upon the clouds, right? So that's not such a far-fetched idea. Number two, <clears throat> notice the description here of the face and the feet is similar to Christ, okay, in Revelation 1, 12 through 16. It's a very similar description. And what's more, number three, the idea of a rainbow in Ezekiel one twenty eight often suggests a theophany, okay? Now, despite those similarities, notice the problem with that interpretation. John says, I saw another strong angel. Now, the term another is an adjective, alas, which means another of the same kind. Now, why would that be a problem to describe Christ as another of the same kind? No one like Christ. No one like Christ. He's the monogenes, exactly right. He's the unique son. So we know for sure then, as we were for careful readers of the text, we know this can't be a reference to Christ. Jesus, the monogenes, he is the unique son of God. And so there's not another like him. Interestingly enough, he could have chosen heteros. Heteros is where we get our term heterosexual. It means another of a different kind. Is everyone with me? But alas is another of the same kind. So we know that this is not a reference to the unique son of God. Now, others have suggested that perhaps this is Michael, the archangel, or Gabriel. Better to see this strong angel as the one of the angels that was with God in the throne room. 
In fact, let me read this to you. You can jot this down. Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. Remember, this is in the throne room. And John says, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? So now another strong angel like him is going to be declaring the very last judgment of God. That's what we see. So again, we, I don't think we can say it's Michael or Gabriel. It's certainly not Christ. It's just another strong angel. All right? Now, one thing I want to point out here. Whoops, in fact, before I put that up, let me um, talk about these clouds. I mentioned earlier that clouds are often vehicles in which Christ rides. Acts 1.9, he ascends in the clouds. We know from Daniel 7, he's going to be coming on the clouds. So the clouds are often depicted in the Old Testament as vehicles of glory and judgment. And so, for example, we know in Matthew 24.30 that when there's judgment that comes, it comes with Christ and those who are with him on the clouds. And so right away, we should be predisposed when we see the clouds issue of judgment. Clouds remind us of the judgment of God all the way through the Old Testament and many references in the New Testament as well. Now, here's the rainbow idea. I want you to think about this rainbow, I think, is a deliberate connection back to Ezekiel. Remember I said the background for Revelation 10 is Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3. Notice here Ezekiel 128. Ezekiel said, As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Now, there's important differences and similarities between what John is seeing and what Ezekiel saw. First of all, notice the rainbow connection. But in Ezekiel's day, he was seeing the radiance of Yahweh's glory. Whereas the angel is depicted as having this rainbow above him. And so the idea may be that, again, the rainbow symbolizes the universal reign of God and his glory. Well, he's obviously, this angel isn't Yahweh, but he's descending from Yahweh, and so he's a messenger of Yahweh. Okay, so there's similarities and yet differences. Now, the similarity, I would say, is again, just as Ezekiel was going to promise judgment, so John is promising judgment as well. Ezekiel promised judgment from Yahweh upon the people of God for apostasy, Judah. John is going to pronounce judgment upon the whole world for apostasy. And that's the connection. I think that that's why John, by the Spirit, was called to see these similarities, all right? Now, also notice the sun. It says here in the text, I'm back on Revelation 10, 1, that his face was like the sun. And again, this recalls Christ's appearance in Revelation 1, 16, not because it is Christ, but because this angel is sent by God. So I think the rainbow and the sun and all these things that are often linked to God show us the close connection between the sent one and the message from God. Does everyone follow that logic? So again, it's not God himself, it's not Yahweh, but this is the messenger of God, and he's going to give, again, the final message of destruction. The pillars of fire, that recalls God's mighty deeds in the Exodus event. Remember, as he leads Israel through the wilderness, they follow him through these, they see the pillars of fire, right? Very similar language, in fact, identical 
in the Greek Septuagint. So all of this is to show us that this angel again is connected to Yahweh. Again, giving us a message of wrath upon the world, but it leads to mercy for the people of God. Final judgment upon the world. We see this in this little book. Verses 2 through 3, it says, And he, that's the mighty angel, had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right hand on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now again, we have this little book mentioned. Notice I have it highlighted red. We should see that again as a connection back to Ezekiel chapter 2. So again, these are the connections I want you to see because of the 494 verses in the book of Revelation, over 80% of them have an allusion back to the Old Testament. So if we don't understand the Old Testament, we're going to have a very difficult time interpreting the book of Revelation. It's built off of it. Let me show you an example of it. Ezekiel 2, 9 through 10. Here's Ezekiel. He said, Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll. Here's the little book in the Septuagint. It was in it. And he says, When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back. Written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Okay, so again, Ezekiel wrote about the judgment coming upon Judah. John is seeing the angel give the message of destruction on the whole world. Now, in fact, um, what's interesting to me is turn your Bibles real quick to 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Why did Ezekiel pronounce judgment upon Judah in his day? It was because of apostasy, wasn't it? Now, notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, when we're looking at the future day of the Lord, which we're in right now, as we're reading Revelation, we're in the day of the Lord. The 70th week of Daniel is consistent with the beginning of the day of the Lord. So notice in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Does everyone turn to it? Notice it says, let no one in any way, now here Paul's talking about the day of the Lord, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. Now stop there. It will not come as a bad translation. It's put in by our English translators. How many of you have italics there? Many of your versions are italicized. The reason it's italicized is because it's not part of the Greek text. It has to be imported by the English writer, the English translator. Now, the problem with that prodesis is just before that, the concern was that the day of the Lord was present. It was here. Well, notice the future-oriented prodesis. It will not come. That's not correct. It's not that it will not come. It's, it's not here. So the idea is that the day of the Lord can't be here. Why? Well, because the first thing in it is what? It says the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So the apostasy is the first thing that characterizes the 70th week of Daniel. And that's because the allegiance of the world, the world, the allegiance is going to be given to Antichrist rather than Christ. Now, why am I showing you this? Because what I want you to see is the connection between apostasy. Why was Judah being judged in Ezekiel's day? Because of apostasy. Why is the whole world going to be judged in, you know, the future day of the Lord that John's writing about? Because of apostasy. Okay, so here's a connection that you want to see between the Old and the New Testament is that oftentimes the judgments that came upon Israel were a foreshadowing of what God would do upon the whole world in the future day of the Lord. And so this ties into our idea of the near and the far. If you ever read prophecy, 
A good example of this would be Isaiah 13. You're reading Isaiah 13, and for the life of you, you're reading it, and you can't understand, is this talking about Isaiah's day, or is it talking about the future? And the answer is yes, because what he's showing you is a near-term fulfillment on the judgment of Babylon, but it shows and foreshadows a future ultimate day when God is going to judge the whole world. And so we should think of this idea of the near and the far, that the judgment in the prophet's day, the near, was always foreshadowing the ultimate judgment that would come in the far, the day of the Lord, that would happen in the last days. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, I just wanted to, um, almost like as a question, but maybe as a reinforcement, Yeah. this idea of Old Testament prophecy having a near-term foreshadowing type of a fulfillment as well as a long-term yeah. fulfillment. I've, uh, I've read that other places and heard that, and I've talked to other people who say, oh, well, that can't be. Either it's future or it's not. You know, I mean, sure. there's, there's a little bit of controversy that I've run into some people who, you know, just amateurs like myself who are, you know, trying to read the Bible uh, and yeah. understand it, who they, they have a hard time following that. I think that what you're saying, it's a valid thing. And, yeah. and um, I just wanted to maybe, Thank you. maybe make Great point, Eric. Yeah, and one thing, it's a, we're going to talk about this at the very end. I'll talk about this concept, can the Bible ever mean what it never meant? And what I'm going to show you is the biblical author isn't suggesting, there's, there's a concept that was prevalent in evangelicalism. Many of you have heard it's called the census plenier, the fuller meaning. So the idea is that the biblical writer wrote something and it me meant what it meant in the day that he wrote it. But you and I have a fuller meaning, a, a different meaning. I reject that because then you have two different meanings. What I'm suggesting is the biblical author in Isaiah 13 gives you evidence that, yes, on the one hand, he's talking about the near-term judgment, but then he'll show you ex evidence that he's actually talking about a future day judgment that'll be worldwide, okay? So I'm not suggesting that well, Isaiah is really just talking about his day, but now I'm reading it as a fuller meaning it's going to happen in the future. The author himself gives you evidence that he's talking about both the near and the far. So great point. And so if we don't see evidence of the near and the far, we just want to understand what the, the author has said. So if Isaiah is just showing us, no, it's in the near term, that's what we should take it as. It's in the near term. Okay, so right in... Um, yeah, I wish I would have put this in my notes now that I'm talking about it, but uh, Isaiah 13, we'll look at it sometime. We've done it in the past, we'll do it again, and we'll show evidence that there is, in fact, a near and the far. Okay, but very, very good point. So, census plenier, the fuller meaning should be rejected. The text of Scripture can never mean what it never meant. Okay? That's a very important concept. All right. Now, where were we? We're talking, oh, about apostasy. Okay, so now, again, there's apostasy in the near, there's apostasy in the far, there's going to be judgment upon the whole world. But now, one of the questions we have to wrestle with is why in the world does this angel have these big feet, one on the sea and one on the land? What's that all about? That's a big angel stepping on the land and on the sea. Well, I think the imagery stems from this idea that God has a worldwide rule. If this angel is to be seen as directly connected to Yahweh's judgment, and I think all the imagery we've seen thus far shows that. The rainbow is usually associated with God. Here it's associated with the angel. The clouds are usually associated with God's judgment. Here it's associated with the angel. The face shining like the sun is usually associated with Christ. Here it's with the angel. Why? Because it's the direct representative of God. And so the standing on the sea and the land shows this worldwide rule, I think. I think that's the imagery that's being depicted. And so God has the right 
to have dominion over the whole world. Think of it this way. Remember in the, the Old Testament, on the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, if land was forfeited because someone was in poverty, if you're an Israelite, remember their land had to be returned on the 50th year? Well, the reason why that was is because God had given it as a covenant possession to Israel. And he didn't want at some point a bunch of foreigners owning the land. It was a covenant possession that he had promised them. Well, ultimately, the reason why he does that is because he's the only tenant of the land. And in that sense, then, God is the only tenant of the world. And so in Christ, he's taking back his right to rule over the world. Okay, so what he's going to do, in a sense, is think of it. In Genesis 1, Yahweh creates. Genesis 3, we have man is supposed to be his representative. And yet sin comes in. And so this idea of God's right to rule is being challenged. And so in the book of Revelation, then, it's being remedied where God, in fact, will rule and he'll take tenant possession, as it were, of the earth again. It is the year of Jubilee. When he returns and Christ reigns, all that was taken away will be restored. And so the year of Jubilee was always designed to foreshadow that, that what had been lost would one day be restored. Yeah. A couple months ago, you used the example of that as a, uh, a real estate transaction, a title deed. Exactly right. That's exactly right. So Yahweh has the title deed of the whole earth, doesn't he? He has the right to rule and reign. Very well, well, well said, Brian. So that's exactly what's going on. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is notice there's this description that he roars like a lion. And again, we should see that this angel is doing that on behalf of Yahweh. What evidence do we have of that? Well, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, verses 29 through 30. Again, Jeremiah 25, verses 29 through 30. As you're turning to Jeremiah 25, 29 through 30, what we have here is a lawsuit oracle, they call it, where God is filing suit against the whole world for judgment. And technically, it's against Babylon, but Babylon is not only the nation, but it also represents this worldwide rebellion against Yahweh. Now, remember earlier... In Jeremiah 25, 11, God had promised that Israel would only be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Okay, so my point, I'm pointing that out to show you that Jeremiah, as he's writing chapter 25, starts with the people of God and the judgment that will befall them, how long it will be. Well, then he transitions into the judgment that will come upon the whole world. So again, it fits our pattern, doesn't it? It fits the pattern that the apostasy that God judged in the Old Testament upon his people will one day, the apostasy will be judged of the whole world. Well, notice the language and how similar it is. Jeremiah 25, 29 through 30. It says, for behold, this is Yahweh speaking, I am beginning to work calamity in this city, which is called by my name. So this is Jerusalem. And shall you be completely free from punishment? The obvious answer is no. You will not be free from punishment, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Yahweh of hosts. Therefore, you shall prophesy against them all these words, and you shall say to them, Yahweh will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. 
So what starts in Israel will be a judgment that comes one day upon the whole world. So notice there, Yahweh roars like what? A lion. And so here the angel is roaring on behalf of Yahweh like a lion. Now, turn your Bibles again to Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, we'll read verses, well, we'll read verses 9 through 16, but I'm going to have to open my Bible for that. Now, remember, Joel is very important because in this section, it's all about the future day of the Lord. Joel chapter 3, notice here in verse 9. It says, Proclaim this among the nations. Set yourselves apart for war, Yahweh says. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Now stop there in verse 10. It's a reversal, isn't it? Bob's pointing out a reversal. Remember in Isaiah? What's the great promise of the messianic reign? When Yahweh's reigning, Bob's smiling because he sees this, in the messianic reign, the swords are beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. But in the day of the Lord, before that time, God is inviting all of the nations to take their, it's it's a reversal, they're to make their farm implementry into weaponry. So he's preparing them for war, isn't he? Now notice what he says. He says, um, let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves together. Bring down your warriors. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now stop there in verse 12. Does everyone see the term Jehoshaphat? That comes from two terms that are put together in Hebrew. Yahweh Shophet. Now Shophet means to judge. And so literally it means Yahweh is the judge. Now think about this. What's Jesus' name mean? It comes from Yeshua. It literally means Yahweh saves. So at the end of the day... Either you have Yahweh saves in Christ, or as the nations, you're going to be brought to Yahweh as the judge at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's one or the other. Either Yahweh's your savior, or he's going to be your judge. So all the nations are going to be gathered against Jerusalem, and he's going to bring them to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which I believe is the Kidron Valley, which surrounds Jerusalem. He says, there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Verse 13, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go and tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, this is people, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. So right there, stop there. The the day of Yahweh is near does not mean that temporarily it's near as in the sense of time. The idea here would be that it's at hand, that it's physically present because Yahweh is coming to judge. That's the idea. Okay, so it's not a temporal issue. It's a physicality issue. Yahweh's coming to judge them himself. Notice the link. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. And then it says, Yahweh roars from Zion. Well, that's exactly what we have here. We have the angel on behalf of Yahweh is roaring like a lion. And so this judgment that we've read about in Jeremiah 25... Joel chapter 3, it's going to be at hand. When the angel, the third woe, unleashes 
the seven bowls of judgment, this battle that we're reading about in Joel, it's going to be unleashed. Now let's continue reading. He utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake, but Yahweh is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Now we'll just stop there. So Yahweh is going to protect the people of Israel and he's going to establish his kingdom. So I want you to see that connection. This is a fulfillment of that. So what was prophesied in the Old Testament is now going to be fulfilled. That yes, indeed, these things are going to break forth. Yeah, Bob. So in this valley of decision, who's judging whom and what's at issue there? Yeah, Yahweh's going to be judging all of the nations. So when uh, decision theology people use this verse (laughs) for the sinner judging God to decide whether he's worth serving or not, Great point. They've got a terrible, wicked reversal. Great point. God is the judge. He makes the decision, and the sinner should be quaking in his boots. Right, right. Because if somebody is called before the judge, the judge is in his chambers. That's right. And he's coming out to announce a decision. Yeah. That's not a pleasant place to be sitting. (laughs) But see, I wrote an article about this once. And so evangelicalism totally reversed this. Yeah. It made the sinner the judge and the God the one who's being judged. Right. We're de- we decide for him when he's the one who makes the decision in the Valley right. of Jehoshaphat. So well said. we better go to Christ Amen. so that we can escape the decision. Yes, we get Yahweh as salvation in Christ rather than Yahweh as judge. Amen. Well said. Think about that magazine as you're pointing that out. What's the famous Billy Graham magazine? Decision Today, isn't it? Or Decision Magazine? Yeah. Yeah. And that comes from this Arminian. I, yeah, and I, well, I wrote that article. Yeah. And I actually got a email from a friend of Billy Graham's. Yeah. And it was a little daunting because this guy was some important person, eh? yeah. evidently. And are you saying Billy Graham is wrong? <laughs> I know. And I wrote back and I said, I believe that his magazine is misusing the passage in Joel. Yeah. It's very clear in Joel who is making the decision Amen. and who's the judge. That's right. Amen. And I thought, okay, what's going to happen? He wrote back, thank you. Oh. <laughs> well, at least he was polite about it. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> Is that, yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, in, in the theology of Billy Graham, the human being can make a decision for God. Now, why would that be? Well, because in Arminian theology, what they believe is that human beings, yes, they have depravity from Adam, but the depravity is wiped away by what they call prevenient grace. Now, prevenient grace is given to all men, in their opinion, that enables all men to believe. So all men then either believe or don't believe, but the ultimate decision, Decision Magazine, is based on you. It's human free will. Some believe and some don't. Now, what's the problem with prevenient grace? It doesn't exist. Prevenient means first grace. Okay, and does, does the Bible teach that there is a grace given to every man and woman enabling every single person to believe? Well, if that were the case, we'd have universalism. Everyone would believe. Okay, but what you see, for example, in Matthew 13, remember... The disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables, but you tell us everything plainly? He says, because to you it has been given the knowledge of the kingdom of God, 
but to them it's not been given. Okay, the term is didomene, it's granted or given. Okay, well, if provenient grace is true that the Armenians teach, Jesus would have to say it was given to everyone. So there is a very succinct passage that you can look to and say, no, it's not given to everyone. To you, it's been granted or it's been given the knowledge of the kingdom of God, and to them it's not been given. Okay, so provenient grace is not true. Some people are graciously given the ability to believe. So decision, as Bob is saying, lies not in the human being, but it lies in God. God decides some that he'll regenerate, circumcising their heart, enabling them to believe in Christ, and others he decides not to. Right, And that's why Paul even weighs this in Romans, I believe it's 9.19, where people reject this and they'll say, well, who can resist his will? And the implication is no one can. So God is the one who decides whom he'll show compassion to and whom he won't. Okay, so Bob is rightly pointing out the decision is ultimately Yahweh's, not human beings. So, sorry, probably more than you wanted to know. But yeah, it's very important, uh, very important theology. Very good. So now, oh, one thing I want to point out is notice here also this idea of the seven peals of thunder. I think here this is what's called a circumlocution for God. For example, in Matthew, sometimes he'll say there was a voice from heaven. Now, why does he use voice from heaven? Because the Jews are very, uh, they didn't like to use God's name, just willy-nilly. They were averse to that. So the seven peals of thunder, these types of things, sometimes they can be used as a circumlocution for God speaking. Now, let me give you evidence of that. Turn your Bibles real quickly to Psalm 29, verses 3 through 4. And what I'm going to show you is Yahweh is often depicted as speaking through the thunder, or it sounds like thunder. Okay, now, as I'm saying that to you, realize that whatever John hears, it sounds like thunder, it was intelligible. Okay, so this isn't just some revelation that's given to him where you can, you know, it's like modern art. You can make it mean anything you want it to mean. Okay, it was intelligible because John sought to write it down, as you'll see in the next slide, and yet Yahweh is going to prohibit him from recording it. Okay, but I want you to see that evidence that God himself is speaking. <coughs> Psalm 29, 3 through 4, it says, The voice of Yahweh is upon the waters, the God of glory thunders. Yahweh is over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is majestic. So here's an allusion probably to creation, but it shows the glory of God. Now, what's very interesting, turn your Bibles now to the New Testament. In John 12, 28 through 29, this figurative language of Yahweh thundering becomes very real, and yet it's intelligible language. And this is where God declares that he will, de- in fact, glorify his son in his name. John 12, verses 28 through 29. John 12, 28 through 29. Jesus here prays and says, Father, glorify your name. Then it says, a voice came out of heaven... I have both glorified it and will glorify it again, unquote. Notice verse 29. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him, unquote. But notice again there in John 12, 28 through 29, it was intelligible. It was recorded. So this isn't just thunder for the sake of thunder to hear noise but it's intelligible revelation. The same thing is occurring then here in Revelation, and John seeks to even write it down, but he's prevented from doing so. Okay, so again, this little book, what I want you to see here on this slide is this little book, 
is a book of judgment, just like it was in Ezekiel's day. Now it's judgment not upon Judah, but the whole world. Now I want you to see that God reveals and he seals. Okay, so recall that John had been commissioned by Jesus himself to write this prophecy. In Revelation 119, that was the programmatic verse of the entire book. Jesus wanted John to write the things that were, the things that are, and the things that would be. And ever since we got into chapter 4 of Revelation all the way to chapter 22, we're in the things that will be. Okay, so John is commissioned to write those things, and, but notice you're going to see that there's some things he can't reveal. So there, there are some things he's supposed to reveal, but there's one thing he's not to reveal, and that's the thunders. Revelation 10, verses 4 through 6, it says, When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, again, probably a circumlocution for God, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. Now, dear ones, notice this phrase from this voice in heaven. He says, seal up the things in red, which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Again, God is not permitting here John to reveal what the thunders had spoken. And again, I think it's probably God. And so what's very interesting is this is the only part of the book of Revelation that John is prohibited from recording or revealing. So God is sealing this up. Now, what's very interesting is this brings up a topic of God sealing sometimes his prophets or apostles from speaking. Okay, now, for example, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is an important issue. I know Bob has taught about this numerous times. And the reason I want to address this, turn your Bibles again to 2 Corinthians 12. We'll look at verses 1 through 4. How many times have you guys heard of a a book or a movie where some child has gone to heaven? Right? Right? Okay. Well, what I'm going to show you is there was a man that we know did go to heaven. It was the Apostle Paul. Okay? Okay. So what you're going to see is something very similar to what happened to John. John was not permitted to reveal certain things that God did not want revealed. Okay, namely the voice of probably God, the seven thunders. Well, notice here in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. Now, Paul is showing us this because if anyone had a right to boast, it was him. And he had such exceedingly great revelations, he was actually given a thorn in the flesh to prevent him from boasting because of what he saw. Notice 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. He says, boasting is necessary though it is not profitable. He says, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he's speaking of himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. This is synonymous with paradise. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So notice here's an apostle, and he's not permitted to reveal what was spoken in heaven. Now, let's consider we have an apostle who's a personal spokesman for Jesus Christ, okay, and he's not permitted to speak about heaven, but then some three-year-old goes to heaven, writes a whole book, and there's movies made, and they're permitted to speak about heaven? Do you see the, the problem there? 
Okay, so remember, we're bound by the words of the apostles and prophets. That's why in Revelation 22, 18, because it's the last of the books, I think that's why John says on behalf of Christ that if anyone adds to this book, God would add to them the plagues that are found in the book itself. Okay, so no one's to add to Revelation. After the apostles and prophets are off the scene, you don't have any Revelation. So when someone says to me, well, did this little boy go to heaven or not? What I'm saying is it's a $3 bill. I, have, I will not trust what the little boy says in any way because if the apostle Paul was not permitted to speak about heaven, there are spokesmen. I'm not going to believe any message from anyone else. Okay? That's the way I think we should think about it. Bob, do you, do you have anything more to add to that? Well, we wrote an article. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we got to get it on tape. Yeah. <laughs> we wrote an article years ago called Visiting heaven and hell to mm. critique, critique three or four books. Yeah. This was in the 90s. Okay, in the 90s. Okay, since then, there's been dozens more. Yeah. And it's amazing how many people are writing these books. Yeah. And they get on talk radio, they get on TV. Right. And it's a big deal. And they make movies about it. Yeah. But do you think anybody would actually believe what the Bible does say. Exactly right. Okay, so um, Paul in Galatians said that even if an angel from heaven right. came with another gospel other than the one you received, Amen. you know, don't believe it, don't listen. Yeah. And so these people aren't coming back with the gospel. Right. They're coming back with details. God has not chosen to reveal. Yeah, amen. And we need to warn people about that. Well said. You can't believe these mystical impressions somebody was saying, well, you know, I, I actually know how to leave my body. Right. And I go around and I see all these things. And I said to this fellow, what's going on is analogous to a demon playing a DVD in your brain. Right, right. Yes. I know that sounds kind of harsh, but... That's a really good description. I couldn't think of a better way to say it. Yeah. If you start having something going on in your brain, yeah. and you're floating around... That's not good. No. <laughs> That's not, well, you, you know, I, I, I have dreams, but it's always the same kind of thing. Yeah. I'm frustrated. Right. I've had dreams where I dreamt Golfing? forever, where I'm on a tee box trying to put the ball on a tee... To hit it, yeah, and everybody's waiting and they're mad. <laughs> and every time I put the ball on, it falls off the tee. <laughs> An hour later, I wake up. Ah! <laughs> Oh, it was a dream. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Maybe that's what it means. <laughs> but the point is, yeah. you can't take these things seriously. Right, right. Okay. It's funny. Um, <laughs> one quick thing. Uh, remind me to, uh, thank you, remind me to uh, mention Jesus. He asked the question or says, a wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign. Oh, yeah. So bring me back to that. But I have to just tag on to your dream. There was some funny movie I saw years ago, just real quick, where this guy He's, he's being beaten by Nazis, and it's a, it's a spoof. So, so he falls asleep. He's you know, beaten unconscious. Well, then he starts dreaming, and his dream is that he's late for finals, and he can't get to finals, and it's just this terrible nightmare. He's trying to get to class, 
And then he shows up to class and he can't do his finals and everything's terrible. Well, then he comes to and again and he's being beaten by Nazis and he goes, whew. <laughs> whew. I thought I was back in finals. <laughs> Only being beaten by Nazis. <laughs> I just thought that was great. I thought, oh, that's really clever. <laughs> you thought being beaten by Nazis is better than finals. Oh. So, oh, I'm sorry. So, um, yeah, this idea. Think about Jesus as a wicked an adulterous generation seek after a sign, but none will be given to it except what? The sign of Jonah. So why was Jonah a sign? Well, Jonah was a prophet sent to Nineveh. And the reason why those in Nineveh listened to him is they thought something strange about this prophet, Jonah. He was swallowed by this great fish, whatever it was, and he was consumed for three days, and then he was spit out. And they thought, and they thought, well, that's not normal, (laughs) right? That's miraculous. When you're dead for three days, for all intents and purposes, and you come back, well, maybe you should be listened to. Maybe he was a prophet of God. Well, Jesus was dead for three days, and he came to life. He is the prophet par excellence. So he should be listened to. But where do you and I hear about the resurrection of Christ? The word of God. So the only sign that we're given is the word of God. That's why Jesus says that they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe even if someone was raised from the dead. So if we won't listen to the words of the apostles and prophets in the scriptures, we're certainly not going to come to faith because of a three-year-old boy. Okay, that's the idea. Okay, so the apostles and prophets are the only authority. Now we're going to come back to this. We might have to continue this later um, because there's so much good stuff here, but uh, we'll, we'll continue going on here. The angel is God's agent here, and I want you to see... In all caps. Uh, he, well, before that, notice he lifts his hand and he swears by the one standing in heaven. Does everyone see that? So that shows you again that the angel isn't God himself, but he's a messenger of God, right? Well, then in all caps, he says, Who created heavens and earth and things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it. That's a quotation from Exodus 20:11, which links a bunch of passages from Genesis together. It's an elaboration of the fourth commandment. So the idea then is because God is the creator, he has the right to rule. And so what the angel is saying is that after this wrath is poured out, God is going to rule. He's going to bring this glorious kingdom that he had been promised that he would bring about in all the prophets from long ago. Okay? Now, notice that he says at the very end, he says, there will no longer be any delay. Now, does everyone see the term delay? That's our term, chronos. Now, Bob had talked about that. When was it? A few weeks ago or last week? or I forget all of it. But oh, anyway, the, the kairos time. versus chronos. Yeah. yeah. There's this passage, eukairos. Oh, yeah, eukairos. Well-timed hell. Yeah. Hebrews 4.16. Hebrews 4.16, yeah. Right. But it, it, it's qualitative time, kairos. Exactly. Chronos is quantitative time. Exactly. So what Bob is showing us is that in Greek, we, we just have in English the term time. But in Greek, they have chronos and kairos. Kairos is the significant moment. It is the moment where God acts, okay? It's the birthday. Think, think of it this way. Kairos is your wife's birthday, your husband's birthday. Chronos is the, the time that you have before the NFL preseason starts, okay? It's just chrono. Well, that's a significant time, too. <laughs> um, <laughs> chronology is on your watch, okay? Kairos is often written on your calendar. It's a significant time. 
Okay? So the idea here then is that there's going to be no longer any delay. The final wrath of God is going to be poured out when the seventh angel sounds. Okay? Now, I'm going to make an application here in the next slide on that. But I want you to see how similar this is to Daniel 12. Turn your Bibles to Daniel 12. There's no longer going to be any delay in time. So as you're turning to Daniel 12, verses 1 through 9, consider this. As we're reading about this interlude, it's really, again, a parenthesis. So no time is expiring in the tribulation period. We're just simply given more data, more background. So the very next event when we get to Revelation 11:15 is the breaking forth of the seventh trumpet, which ends up giving us the seven bulls and the final wrath of God. Okay? So that's why he says there's no delay. Now notice here how similar this is to Daniel 12, 1 through 9. This is all about the 70th week of Daniel, the same period that's being covered here in Revelation. Daniel 12, 1, it says, At that time, Michael, that's the archangel, the great prince who watches over your people, will arise. By the way, you'll see him come up again in Revelation 12. There will be a time of distress, unlike any other from the nation's beginning up to that time. So stop there. Right there, Daniel's saying, this is going to be the worst time period ever. Now, I keep belaboring that point. We've read about some terrible things. It's the worst time period ever. Has this ever occurred? Have we ever lost a third of the Earth's population due to demonic beings? I think that that would have made the history books if that would have occurred. So Daniel's talking about the same time period that we're talking about in Revelation. He says, but that, at that time, your own people, all those whose names are found written in the book, will escape. Many of those who sleep in the dusty ground will awake. Here's the resurrection. So if you want to know where places that speak of the resurrection in the Old Testament, this would be one. Some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting abhorrence. There's the judgment. But the wise will shine like the brightness of the stars. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and another on the bank of the river. So these are angels. Verse 6, he says, And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? So he's asking, How long? Will there be a delay? In verse 7, he says, I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised, notice what he does, he raises his right hand and his left towards heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever. So you have the angel swearing by God, just as you have the one angel here in Revelation 10 swearing by God. But notice the difference. He says that it would be time for time, times, and half a time. That's the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Okay, so he's saying it's going to be for a time, times, and half a time. That's the last three and a half years of the great tribulation period. It says as soon as they finished. Verse 8, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord... What shall be the outcome of these things? Now listen to what they said to Daniel. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are to remain secret and sealed. We have words sealed again. Until what? The time of the end. Well, what I want you to see now is in the book of Revelation, what was sealed is now being revealed. Now, there are certain things that are sealed again, the, what God said through the seven thunders, but everything else is being revealed. So we're given all this data. Think about for just a moment, if you didn't have the book of Revelation... What would you know about the 70th week of Daniel? Well, not a lot. You know, you'd have quite a bit, but think about all you know from the book of Revelation. You know quite a bit, don't you? So what we have to understand is that in Daniel's day, the last days were always in the future. Now, when did the last days begin according to the Bible? 
exactly they began with the first advent of Christ. Not with the reestablishment of Israel, as you hear so many say, but according to Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, it's through the first advent of Christ. And so in the first advent of Christ, we've been living in these last days. So that's why what was formerly sealed is now being revealed or has been revealed in the book of Revelation. Okay, does that make sense? Now, I also want you to see that what's being revealed here is an answer to prayer. That this no, there is no longer going to be any delay is a direct answer to the prayer of the saints. The saints were praying. They cried out with a loud voice. Remember back in Revelation 6? A bunch of them had been martyred and murdered during this future time period because of their belief in Christ. And so it says they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to them, each, each of them, a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for what? A little while longer. Notice the while, that's chronos. So they're to rest for a little while, a little bit more time, until one, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So now that we're in Revelation 10, we see God is going to answer this prayer. There's been enough time, enough people that have filled up. Now God is going to give the final judgment. And so here we see that God answers the prayer of his saints. Remember last week, Bob was talking about how God answers prayer in Hebrews 4.16, that we can come to the throne of grace and find what kind of help? Timely help. Not, um, I thought of that principle was just in time. Many people in business, they use that JIT, just in time, the inventory. They don't, you don't stack it up for a long time. It just, it's just in time. The same way with God's grace. It's just in time. Okay, so just at the right time, what this shows then is God has ordained the time of all things, the reign of Christ, the coming of his judgment, and he answers the prayers of his people. He does. It might not be in the timing that we like, but it's at just the right time, according to God and his counsel. The other thing I want you to consider with this idea of chronos, that there's an idea that there's a day that's coming where, in fact, you'll have the judgment and it'll be the end. This shows us that time, according to the biblical authors, is linear. Now, why do I say that? Because in Eastern circles and Eastern religions, time is not linear, it's cyclical. So as our culture becomes more and more Eastern, look at all the yoga. Okay, how many times have you guys heard or seen a commercial that has yoga on it? Everybody? Right? How many times have you seen a commercial that has the Lord's Supper on it? Okay. So is our culture becoming more biblical-oriented or more Eastern-oriented? It's more Eastern-oriented. So their time is cyclical. Okay, so what happens then is this ties into all sorts of things. Hegel, the most influential philosopher that he, from, from Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel comes Karl Marx. Karl Marx was a Hegelian. Okay, so what he teaches is that God is going to draw all things into himself and everything is going to spiritually evolve and get better. He's a panentheist. He has an Eastern mindset. And so things are going to get better and better and evolve, and everything's cyclical, and it's just going to get better and better and better, and finally things are just going to be wonderful, right? 
But the Bible says, no, it's the opposite. Everything's going to get worse and worse, and it's linear, and we're heading towards a day of judgment. Now, if you're in the Eastern mindset, do you need Jesus Christ, the cross, and to be saved from the wrath of God? No, because everything's going to get better and better. Bob, you and I were doing uh, radio one day, and you made a fantastic point about, dare I say, Barack Obama. He's a galleon. He's a galleon. And explain why. Because he said someone is on the wrong side of history. Explain that like you did while we were sitting in your room full of walleye well, and wall. Okay. <laughs> if you just hear the talk, not only of our president but of other politicians, oh, uh, Russia invaded Crimea. Oh, they're on the wrong side of history. Okay. Uh, what about all this stuff in the Middle East? Well, they're backwards. They're, they're on the wrong side of history. The idea is that the Hegelian synthesis is true. Yep. And everything's evolving into some tertium quid, which means third option, some better yes. future. So what they, and emergent beliefs, I talked about that in my exactly. book on emergent. Um, so they say you can't really do anything to stop it, but you can create setbacks. Right. Okay, so in... Our president's thinking, some of these things are setbacks, but it doesn't stop the evolutionary process. And this is spiritual evolution exactly. or social evolution. Exactly. And it's inevitable that everything will get better. So exactly. in that Eastern worldview, as you said, Eric, yeah. everything's heading toward paradise exactly. without judgment. Right. In a biblical worldview... History is linear and is heading toward judgment. Yes, that's why we need the okay. cross. And we believe there is real evil yeah. that needs to be identified as evil. And that evil, unlike the Marx and Hegel and all that, yeah. it doesn't synthesize into something better. Right. It's evil. It stays evil. It has to be resisted. Yes. And ultimately defeated. Exactly. Okay, so God intends to actually defeat evil, not cause it to evolve into something. Amen. Now, so when I was studying to write that, when I wrote the book on emergent, the emergent theologians all believe in spiritual evolution. And when I went out to their conference as part of my post-writing research to, to verify that the book was accurate, there were two people there who told me personally that they were going to write a book proving spiritual evolution based on biological evolution. Oh, wow. So they take one falsehood to prove another. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. right. And so then I, that's just how they think. Exactly. And so everyone here has heard the term progressive? That's what, that's what it means. Exactly. Progressive means Hegel. Progressive exactly. means Inevitable social and spiritual evolution. Right. So we're pro- progressing toward heaven through processes already happening on earth. Exactly. And we say, no, we're heading nonstop toward judgment. And unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Exactly. Amen. Well said. Yes, amen. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, so, so think about what Bob has just said to us. They think they're progressing. Everything's going to get better. 
What the Bible teaches is they're actually regressing. Babylon was built, the Tower of Babel, because they wanted to make a name for themselves. In the 70th week of Daniel, Babylon will be built again, right? Because they want to make a name for themselves. They're actually regressing. How many know that in the 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century, America wanted to get off of coal and they wanted to go to gasoline because gasoline was so much more efficient, okay? So now the left, the progressives, want to go back to coal. Now, how do I say they want to go back to coal? Well, they want to have electric cars. Well, where do you get your electrical electricity for your batteries? Well, it comes from coal. Now, coal is like 68% efficient. Gasoline is, what, 90-some percent efficient? So are they really progressive or are they regressive? See, they're not bringing us towards utopia. They're bringing us to hell. That's what they're doing. It's a false religion based on this Eastern concept that everything's getting better and better when, in fact, they're heading linear towards the judgment. They need Christ. Yes, go ahead, Tom. Yeah, Brian, uh, that's one of the biggest uh, battles that you have going on in the worldview battle is they're trying to prove or get to that point in being able to evolve to a, you know, this level. We don't believe in that. And right. so that's why you see such a battle against Christians right now. Yes, amen. Is it's such a battle to try and, and it's a conflict of worldviews. Exactly, and right. there's just no question about that. I was also doing some studying on Karl Marx last night. And, you know, he was a guy that never even had a job. In fact, the introduction of it was a guy, would you... Would you read a diet book with a guy on the front cover that was, uh, you know, uh, fat as a yeah. uh, fat as anything, <laughs> right? And then say, "This is the diet I went on." <laughs> well, you won't, you know, when you look at it, just the common sense part of it. To look at a guy of Karl Marx, who yeah. uh, he had, I think, two kids commit suicide. He never uh, supported his family. Right. He ended up using everybody else's money in order to basically come in there and just a horrible horrible life i think there were six people that ended up coming to his funeral so as you look at his life and and then he's trying to preach you know this type of a philosophy um you know that it's a battle of 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 the worldviews right now so exactly it's a spiritual battle without a doubt it is a spiritual battle amen well said we're out of time well thank you everyone well we'll we'll continue this we'll keep going Uh, next week and we'll uh, continue progressing but so many great ideas thank you for all your contributions let's close with prayer heavenly father lord we thank you that you are a god who's coming in judgment upon our enemies but we also thank you lord that you are a god who gives mercy to those who will come to your son we do pray for our loved ones our neighbors our friends we pray that they would seek christ that you would seek them most importantly and regenerate them enable them to believe give us opportunities for the gospel so that people will escape this judgment that we're reading about. I pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters, that they'd always be reminded of the great blessings that they have through salvation in your Son. Enable them to persevere until the last day. In Jesus' name, amen.